everybody. Welcome to Bone to Pick. I am Michael Davis, and I am honored today to be interviewing our featured artist for the month of February, the great Steve Touré. Uh, for my money, Steve has forged one of the most impressive, one of the most innovative and most creative careers in the history of jazz trombone. He has recorded 16 CDs as a solo artist. He has toured and recorded with the virtual who's who of jazz, including the late, great Woody Shaw, Ray Charles, Dizzy Gillespie, McCoy Tyner, Art Blakey, Cedar Walton, just to name a few. Uh, he has held down the trombone chair in the Saturday Night Live band for the last 30 years, and he is currently the professor of jazz trombone at the Juilliard School. And Steve, I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your exceptionally busy schedule to sit down with us today and talk about your extraordinary uh, career in life and music. My pleasure, yeah. And, uh, and also thank you for allowing us into your beautiful home here in Montclair, New Jersey. It's uh, really nice of you to do that. Um, I figured we'd jump right in and have you talk a little bit about what, what made you gravitate to the trombone and maybe some of your early memories uh, growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, Mike, uh, my older brother, whose name happens to be Mike, <laughs> uh, Michael, uh, plays saxophone and... And he played clarinet, too. And he played in the school band. He started in the fourth grade. So I wanted to play, too. But I was two years younger. And you had to be in the fourth grade. I went to the band room. They said, no, you got to be in the fourth grade. Come back. So I came back. And the bandmaster said, well, what instrument do you play? And I said, well, I don't know. I, I don't have an instrument. And there was a picture of a marching band on the wall, you know, with all the instruments. And I said, well, pick an instrument. So I looked up on what's in the front row of the marching band because <laughs> of the slide, the trombone. I said, I'll play that one. <laughs> A little bit I know. <laughs> oh, that, that instrument, I love it to death, but it gives you fits, you know. Yes, so. indeed. <laughs> and uh, I started in the fourth grade in the school band, beginning band. And uh, I liked it. I liked the trombone right off. And I just stuck with it. I never quit. That's awesome. And uh, so, did you grow up in a musical family other than your brother? Were your parents musicians um, as well? Or yeah, yeah, my mom played piano, and she used to play for fashion shows and for company, and and she played standards like a light stride kind of, not not fast like David <laughs> or nothing, but a light stride kind of style, earlier style standards. She, you know, my parents, the music of their day was big band music. Mm -hmm. And my mom and dad actually met at a Count Basie dance. That's great. I'm not kidding you. So when I was little, they took me to see all the big bands. I actually saw Duke Ellington. And Ella Fitzgerald was a guest vocalist. And Coleman Hawkins was a guest soloist. And this was when I was in the fifth grade. That's awesome. And, and uh, Clark Terry was in Duke's band. And I remember Britt Woodman was playing first trombone. Johnny Hodges played Prelude to a Kiss. I'll never forget it. I can still hear the beauty of his sound in my mind. It impressed me so much. His tone, tone was just gorgeous. And Duke's band, that's one of the things that made me want to play this music. And I said, man, I want to do that, you know. And, and it started me on the way. And, and then in middle school, uh, we had a jazz band. That was my first jazz band. The funny story is that... Uh, before school started, my mom took me down to the music store in Lafayette, California, to the local store, and they rented me a trombone. And 
she said, well, I get, you take a lesson at the, at the music store before you go to school tomorrow, you know. So I had my first lesson, the guy showed me and put it together and everything. And uh, I learned a song the first day. <laughs> I just had a knack for melody and rhythm. I, it, I didn't learn. My first teacher did not teach me about embouchure or about birth control. But somehow he imparted to me musicality. And uh, I had to learn all the breath control and embouchure later. He told me to smile when you go high, which is absolutely mm. wrong. Right, of course. And uh, it worked, but it's not happening. Yeah. And he didn't tell me about uh, diaphragmatic breathing, you know. And so, you know, I wish I had to learn that from the beginning. It sure made life simpler. <laughs> <laughs> but well, we, you know, we all have our own journey. Sure. It's great that you got the music, though. That's more important, really, because the other stuff, you clearly picked it up anyway. But, it's uh, carried me through. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. Well, in 1966, it presented you the first opportunity to play with uh, a true jazz master in Roland Kirk. And mm. I was wondering if you could maybe share your thoughts about uh, what that experience was like. And then, of course, you went on to have a relationship with him and uh, just kind of share your yeah. feelings about that. Things went on from there. Well, my older brother, Michael... Uh, one time he brought home this Rasan. Well, it was before Rasan. It was Roland Kirk, and it was a record called We Free Kings. And man, it blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. And I was going to school at Sacramento State College at the time. And I heard that, that Roland Kirk was going to be in San Francisco at the jazz workshop. So I drove down from San Francisco to Sacramento and Friday night went to the show, went back to the show Saturday night because he blew my mind. Mm -hmm. And I was underage, you're supposed to be 21 in California. And I put on a fake mustache, it's funny. And, <laughs> and I got there early, paid my money, and sat in the back and ordered a soda. And they knew, but they let me slide, you know. And so after the show on Saturday night, he said, well, folks, uh, tomorrow... We got the, the Sunday session at 3 o'clock. Come and bring the kids. And I was so moved. Afterwards, I went up to say hello to him. And just shake his hand and let him know that I appreciated what he did so much. And then I said, Roland, you having a session tomorrow at 3? He said, well, no, it's not really a jam session. It's a matinee show for the kids where they don't serve alcohol. And people can bring their children, you know. To introduce them to the music. He said, but it's for kids. Do you play it? I said, yeah. He said, what do you play? I said, trombone. He said, well, bring it. Come and play. And, and there's kids going to be there and everything. I said, okay. So I went and played with him. And he liked it and asked me to stay and play that night. So I stayed and played the last night at the club. Played all night. And then uh, we exchanged numbers. And when he would come to town, he'd call me and I do the week at the club with him, but he'd give me 50 bucks for the week or something. I didn't even care. It was like going to school. Sure. I was honored just to be there. Oh, that must have been an amazing feeling. Oh, man. <laughs> it was during the inflated, beer to peer, uh, inflated tear uh, period. Mm -hmm. And he was at full power. So it's unbelievable. Mm. Huh, very cool memory. Um, your first big professional break uh, came with Ray Charles joining Ray's band in 1972. Yeah. Maybe talk a little bit about what it was like touring with Ray and the feelings you had getting that big break at the time. Well, there's two gigs that I auditioned for, and they're both good ones. 
Lewis, <laughs> Ray Charles, and Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Indeed, both good gigs, that's for sure. <laughs> and uh, I auditioned for Ray, and you know, he liked what I did, but he said, Well, we already have three tenor trombones. Uh, do you play bass trombone? And I had a horn with the triggers. So I said, Yeah, you know, because <laughs> I wanted to gig, you know. And, um, so it didn't, it had a lot of low C's, but not a whole lot way down in the pedals, you know. So mm -hmm. I, I got through it. And, uh, then I got a little larger real bass trombone, but. It ended up that I didn't stick with the bass trombone. To me, it's a different animal. The bass trombone is like a really a different instrument. It's a different animal than the tenor trombone. Uh, it's a different blow. It's a different technique. Uh, when you improvise, the conception is a lot different too. Um, at least for me, it was. Mm -hmm. I had the phrase differently because of the register. Because, you know, a lot of bass trombones, uh, when they play a solo in jazz, they'll just play in the tenor trombone register. Right. Yeah. And, and I would try to play down and utilize the trigger. And, and I said, man, I'm going to just stick with the tenor. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling whenever I whenever I have to play a solo on bass trombone, I feel like I'm just scuffing because I'm putting it in the uh, tenor range and it just feels like the wrong thing to do. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's a different animal. But I, I got a lot of great experience from doing that and just listening to Ray sing every night. Oh man, and give me the bump every night. He'd say, Georgia, and every night I get my hairs would stand up and stuff. You know, it'd get me every time, man. Ray was pure feeling. Everybody loved Ray. It didn't matter what he was doing uh, blues or country music or R&B or jazz or his own stuff. It, it was all about feeling, pure feeling. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, I never had the pleasure of playing with him, but every time I've heard him, it just exudes music. Just gets yeah, yeah, that's a great, great story. That's very uh, interesting. Um, well, nineteen seventy-three. Now you uh, hooked up with Art Blakey. Um, maybe you can talk about that experience, and, and then I, I believe that kind of led you to move out here to New York, and uh, yeah, and what that, what was that like? Just that whole experience, and then how you get out here, and, and uh, how was it once you got out here? Well, Ray tours like. Mm, 10 months a year. Then he takes a couple of months off. He'll break about a couple of weeks before Christmas, and then he'll go back uh, in March, usually. And during that break, I went back to the Bay Area. And while I was gone that year, 72, Woody Shaw had moved to the Bay Area. So I heard he was there, and I went down and saw him and ended up talking with him, ended up sitting in. And we ended up being friends. And in May of that year, our Blakey came through town. And Woody was going to be on the gig. So he said, come on down. I want you to meet Art. He loves trombone. I want him to hear you. So I went down and Woody introduced me. And, and, and Woody said, come on, come on, come on. And I was, I was kind of scared of him, you know, because I, uh, I had all the records with Curtis and everything. Oh, man. Mr. Blakey, could, could I sit in and play a song with you? All right, get your horn. Come on. You know, so <laughs> I went and played. And, and I ended up playing the set, and then I ended up playing the whole night. And then after the the, the evening was over, he said, you want to join the Jazz Messengers and go to New York? 
I said, when? He said, now nah, pack your bags and finish the, finish the week and be in the studio at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. And I said, uh, my joy hit the floor. And I said, well, he said, you heard me. He'll tell you where to go, you know, so. And so that's that record I did with Art. But I had just sat in the night before. I didn't know any of the songs. I was scared to wow. death. I didn't know what was going on. And Woody had two tunes on the record, and he wrote out a third part ensemble for me. And I just played ensemble, but I was on the record. You know, and John Hendricks was there, and Cedar was, that's when I hooked up with Cedar. Cedar was in the band, Carter Jefferson on sax, Mickey Bass on bass, Ray Montiel on congas. Wow, what an amazing story. That's you know, incredible. And uh, so Art brought me to New York, and I stayed with him. He put me up for a couple of, maybe, something like that till I find my own place. And I ended up temporarily staying with Lou Marini and Joe Randazzo. They had a big apartment on 96th Street, or 98th and Broadway, excuse me, 98th and Broadway. And I stayed there another month or so until I found my own apartment. And, and you know, during that period, it was pre-Wenton Marcellus, so art, Woody had left the band to do his own thing and Bill Hartman came in and there was a lot of transitions. And Art wasn't working as much as he did later when, when Winton came in the band. Mm -hmm. And uh, the trombone was the extra horn depending on the money. If he had money, he'd add the third horn, otherwise it was a quintet. Mm -hmm. And so I got uh, a chance to go play with Thad Jones Matt Lewis because John, who I knew from the Bay Area, was playing lead trumpet. And I ended up doing a, a, a European tour with that in Mountain and a West Coast tour with them, Monterey Jazz Festival and all that. Boy, that's the best big band I ever played with. Unbelievable. Dad and Mel. Yeah. Oh, of course. Man. And, and his writing and, oh, man, you talk about getting the bumps. Those voices used to make my hair stand up being in the middle of that. Such a dynamic oh, leader, too. He man. just said, another guy who just exuded music and his old mannerisms. And what an honor, you know. Yeah. Went on from there. Yeah, that is awesome. Well, well, you brought up the name that I'm dying to talk to you about, and I'm, it's uh, really appreciate you doing the interview. And as soon as you said okay, I was like, this is really what I want to focus on a lot is uh, is the great Woody Shaw, and for mm. my money, one of the greatest musicians of any instrument, but certainly uh, in the lineage of great jazz trumpet players. Woody has a very prominent place in that list. And, um, and I think, you know, you've gone on to do some amazing work since then, but certainly that seemed to be some of the most kind of noteworthy playing up to that point, and then also brought you to the attention of international jazz audiences and critics uh, yeah, all over the definitely, world. Definitely. Um, so with that in mind, uh, if you could talk to us about anything and everything you'd like to talk about with Woody, I was particularly interested in, in, in your opinion about how he approached uh, playing and writing and what his, like some of, I just mentioned to you before the interview, I listened to Rosewood this morning, one of my favorite records, and what it was like in the recording process. And then the one other thing I was going to ask you about with regards to Woody is, it's a pretty bold step that he replaced the saxophone with the trombone. It was a great step, and obviously you had a great musician in yourself to, to do that, but that seemed to be a pretty bold move, and I was curious to your thoughts about all well, of those things. So. Woody caught a lot of flack for that. Mm. Yeah. He caught a lot of flack, but he, Woody, he was an intense person, and that's why his music had that intensity, and it wasn't 
a negative intensity. It was just that he believed in what he believed in and he wasn't scared to say it. So many people are trying to be politicians and no matter what somebody does, oh, that's cool, there's no wrong and and you just, you can do what you want to do and there's no rules and all that. But what he believed in the music and in its roots. Now, you know, he pushed boundaries and he was an explorer and he was all for taking chances. He played with Eric Dolphy and all yeah. that stuff. It wasn't about being scared to try something new, but it was about uh, having your stuff together and being for real. And he, he was intense all the time, even when he was being gentle and delicate or sensitive. He had this intensity about him that was like 100% focused, was like, oh, you know. And that's just the way everything he did was. And uh, it came through in his music. But what, what did you, you, you had something that I, I lost my train of thought. Well, I was curious about when I listened to Woody, uh, you know, there's so many aspects of his playing that seemed very innovative to me, certainly the, har the harmonic content that he uh, introduced. And then also the use of intervals. I mean, he, seemed, he seemed like the first brass player to start using fourths yeah. and wider intervals in his yeah. playing. Yeah. Um, but in, and also what it was like kind of like touring with him. It must have been... Uh, must like you're saying, must have been an intense period playing that oh, music. Well, he, was with, basis. he was with Columbia and then and then later electric musician. He was a top cat. He was touring like all the time. We worked a lot, six night a week gigs back then. Uh, we'd work uh, two or forty weeks a year anyway. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was a lot. And a lot of six nighters. So that's when you get a chance to really get your stuff together because you know, when you play the music every night, you know, after a few nights or a week or whatever, you don't have to look at the, the paper anymore. And then you start really playing the music. Mm -hmm. And you start listening and playing what you hear instead of what you see. And I remember, too, to get back, I'll get back to that, but Woody caught a lot of flack for uh, not having a saxophone in the band. Because, you know, the traditional jazz quintet is trumpet, saxophone. Sure. And Woody said, trumpet, saxophone, trumpet, saxophone. I'm tired of hearing that. You know, I like this sound. It's a new sound. It's fresh. Don't you like it? And then the club owner would say, well, yeah, it sounds good. He said, well, do you got a full house? He said, yeah, the place is packed. He said, well, then shut up and leave me alone. <laughs> Let me play my music. <laughs> good for him. That's great. <laughs> he was like that. He'd speak his mind. Yeah. But that's why he played like that. You yeah. did? Yeah, absolutely. You know? And uh, his harmonic thing, yeah. And and he's, he, the intervals he used, he cited two references. Was He worked with McCoy, and of course that comes from Coltrane, mm -hmm. through that lineage, and also through Eric Dolphy, who used a lot of different intervals, mm -hmm. big time. There's this one tune, I have yet to learn it, but it's called Miss Anne, and it's got the craziest intervals in it. And he played it with Eric Duffy. And I said, man, what, have you ever heard this song called Miss Anne? And he said, oh, yeah. And he just whooped it right off like that. And I was like, wow, you remember that? He said, yeah, yeah. So I was rehearsing with Eric, and, and he encouraged us to stretch out. So I was playing some different stuff. And all of a sudden, he stopped the band. He said, stop. What's the chord there? And what did he say? Uh, e flat minor, seven flat five. He said, okay, cool. I just want to make sure you knew where you were. Carry on. Oh. <laughs> Because he said they were way out there, you know, but, wow. but 
you say you just want to make sure you knew what you were doing. You know, that's great. And uh, uh, Woody showed me those intervals, but I couldn't execute it the way he did. I mean, he's going that fast, and, you know. And uh, I had to figure out a different way to use the intervals. So instead of making waterfalls out of them, like he he could execute them so rapidly and clean, yeah, and articulate. See, none of the young brass players today seem to want to articulate the way Woody or Freddie or Dizzy or Lee Morgan or Clifford and all that. They, their articulation is so clean. Man. Yeah. And they use the tongue. And your tongue is the rhythm, you know. You express the clarity of rhythm through the clarity of your articulation. Exactly. And, yeah. and the same with trombone. You know, that J.J. Curtis, you know, Rossellino. All that, that articulation gives the clarity. Yeah. No you know, and... and Woody talked about the articulation, and he loved Lee Morgan. Of course, he loved Freddie, too, and Dizzy was the champ. So I, I remember one time, Woody, um, I bumped into him. He said, well, what you doing Thursday night? And I said, uh, nothing. He said, you still got your car? I said, yeah. He said, will you take me to the half note and give me a ride and be like some moral support? I saw Dizzy, and he asked me to sit in with him and... Uh, I want you to come hang out with me, give me a little more support. You know, that's Dizzy Gillespie, you know. <laughs> so we went down there, and uh, Dizzy went and played a couple of tunes, and he asked Woody up. And we were sitting at the table right off the stage. And Woody went out and did his thing. And like always, it was super intense, and he was dead serious. But it's not competition. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference here. He was being himself. He's not that I'm going to do anything better than you can. <laughs> I'm going to play louder and higher and faster. You know, it's not that stuff. Right. It's just being himself. And he plays with that intensity every night. And I know because I play with him. Mm -hmm. So he went out and he did his singing. And, and while he's playing, Dizzy come over to me and listening at the table. And then he whispers to me, he said, man, he sure got his own thing, doesn't he? Man, that's beautiful. I like that. I say, yeah. And then Dizzy went out and played, and it was like father and son. Mm. I mean, Woody was my man. I love Woody, but Dizzy, it was like father and son. Mm. And, you know, Dizzy was using intervals before any, any of the, the brass players, really. If you listen to the break on Salt Peanuts, there's this one break, um, you know, they got that. And, and, and that's the, the rhythm. Uh, 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 Bird was going bop, 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 and Dizzy was beep, beep. Mm. They weren't jumping octaves. Right, Dizzy right. told me, we didn't go da, dee, da, da, dee, da. And he said, no, 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 Bird was going bop, 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 bop. Wow. It was two parts. But their rhythm was that tight that it, it sounded like one person. Their attack, they matched attacks. Yeah. You know, it was deep. And and there's that one break do do dee da 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 bop bop bip that's all fours. You know, man, God, and that was all fours. So Dizzy was doing the intervals. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you don't a different way, right? Not the Coltrane way, 
the bebop way, but he was using those intervals and, and you know, Dizzy's stretch, not to try and get what he was just doing his thing, because Dizzy played some different scales. He had these scales where he keep the middle finger down, do stuff with the third drop, some different stuff, man, like mm-hmm. alternate positions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, on that, on that, I played with Dizzy, and when he showed me that break, you know, I was trying to start on the B natural T. Do B natural, you know. And he said, no, play the E in fifth. Go do D B four five four five three. Then the one da da D da do You know, and I said, man, he knew about alternate positions. He taught me a lot. Dizzy taught me a lot about alternate. Wow, that's really Dizzy, Dizzy was a genius, man. Yeah. Oh, no Woody was in his own way, too. But I, I respect the lineage. You mm-hmm. know, Woody did, too. Woody said, give me some moral support. He said, that's Dizzy Gillespie. <laughs> but Woody played his butt off, man. You know he did. Yeah. You know, and uh, well, that's I, man, I, he allowed me freedom to explore. He had this tune called Moon Drain. And the first part is, is pretty regular. But the bridge, at the end of the bridge, there's this sequence. It's all in, in sus fourth chords. And bump, 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 bump. And they don't move like two fives at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a different kind of motion harmonically. And Woody used to just cruise through the, 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 the first part would just B flat for four and A minor for four and all that. It's easy. And he cruised that. And then when he get to those heart chains, all of a sudden he goes, he'd eat them all up, you know. <laughs> and for me, it was the other way around. I'd be yeah. playing all my stuff during the easy part when, when it get to the changes. And I'd simplify it because and, and, I wanted to really be making them. I didn't want to be BSing. Yeah. I didn't want to be jiving on them. I wanted to really play something with substance on that harmonic thing. And one night I went for some stuff. I don't know what I was doing, but I just went for some stuff. And I felt like I fell down. Uh, but I got back up and rolled and got right back on my feet, so to speak, and fought my way out of it, you know. But I felt like, oh boy, that's you know, you got to try. You know, you don't get things together unless you try. You know, that's part of part of it. You got to make mistakes. That's how you grow. No questions. And he allowed me to do that. Anyway, I didn't say nothing. I got after that course. I got on out. Mulgrew Miller was playing piano. Mulgrew was playing his piano solo. And Woody come over and put his arm around my shoulder. Say, uh, hey Steve, you remember that 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 stuff you played coming out of the bridge on on your uh, third chorus? I said, huh? Woody had photographic memory. Oh, yeah, I'm not kidding you. Photographic memory. You know, he had retinitis pigmentosa. He could not see well. Right. Very very limited vision. So he go like you get a piece of a new music. I write a chart for the band. He hold his trumpet in his hand like this, and he put the music like this. And he'd look at it and finger it on his trumpet. And then he'd give me the music back, say, okay, count it off. And he'd have the whole thing there. And he'd never forget it. Wow. It was like a picture in his mind. Yeah, Gary Simonian got that stuff. Right, right. Yeah. Did he have perfect pitch as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would he have perfect pitch? He could tell you to squeak on the brake to the car. It's five octaves above the middle of the sea or some <laughs> st- stupid stuff, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. But... He said, what was that stuff coming out the bridge on your third course? You remember that? I said, oh, that mess. Oh, man, I'm sorry, man. I was just trying something. He said, no, 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 no. I like that. I like that. I didn't hear, I haven't heard anybody do that on the trombone before. Uh, you know, 
Keep doing that. You'll figure it out. Just land on your feet. I don't care what you do as long as you resolve it. Mm. You can go for something. Just resolve it. You know, it's like a cat. You throw it up in the air or whatever happened, you land on his feet. Mm -hmm. Just land on your feet. Bring me out of it. It's cool. I said, really? He said, yeah, that's all right. Okay. So, you know, I started trying stuff. What I figured out with the force, I'm still working on trying to execute him rapidly, but, you know, when, when you play in that style, it's a rhythmic statement as much as anything else, more than anything else, it's a rhythmic statement. And to, Woody did intervals like in patterns that would fold into themselves, so it's like a waterfall, and then you just come out and resolve it to where you want to resolve it. But I couldn't execute it that fast because I have to tongue every note and do the slide too, and I figured out a way to just make lines out of open intervals instead of waterfalls. Mm. So more melodic lines, and I use it that way, or I use them. JJ used force in melodies. Yeah, right. You know. Yeah, for sure. He really did. But I, I, I do lines with the force, not just melodies. And then Woody McCoy, Coltrane, Bobby Hutchison. Right. They all like the do di oh be da 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 di da 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 di di da da di di da da di di but they go so it sound like this it sound like that and it just tumbled down and then they they move so it's like if you got a a musical palette and you take your paintbrush you can just paint up or down you can move the color anywhere you want until you resolve it and that, that was a concept. We're thinking more in terms of colors and rhythmic motion and then resolution. Of course, you know you know what the chords are, too, and all that stuff. Yeah, sure. But uh, it's just another way of thinking. What a great... Uh, thanks for sharing all those uh, memories. I mean, that's like amazing stuff. And then to, to be around a guy that inspiring and open it must have been a fantastic uh, experience and, and development in your as a musician brass player to be inspired by that on a night would be. I, I tell you, you know, I've been so blessed to play with the people I play with because I learned a lot. Of course, Woody, it was during the period with Woody that I found my own voice. Mm. And he encouraged that. And so it was during that, Mogro too, during that same period, Mogro found his voice. Mm. And, and man, that band, that's the best band I ever played with in terms of, of uh, being together for a long time and not just a moment, but a unit, man. And we could, we couldn't wait to get to the band saying because after once the final personnel came together, uh, uh, Woody Mulgrew, Stafford James, Tony Reedus, and myself. Oh, after maybe five months or something, then it really gelled, and it was just like many bodies, one mind. Mm. And we could all kind of stuff would happen without even rehearsing this stuff. And we just couldn't wait to get to the bandstand to see what was going to happen that night. But, you know? Yeah. And, but, but I learned that from Woody, but I learned a lot of stuff from other people. Like I told you about stuff I learned from Dizzy. Mm -hmm. And Dizzy taught me about phrasing and how important dynamics is to phrase. Oh man, he really busted me. Uh, Cause and I just didn't know the concept, but if you listen to the records he did with Bird, you can hear it as clear as day, but you wouldn't have th thought of it. Uh, we did a, uh, a 
gig and the only rehearsals Dizzy had were sound checks. And if I didn't know a tune, he'd show it to me at sound check. And he'd play it slow for you. He goes like this and he'd play it for you. <laughs> I mean, something like sure enough, I learned that in the sound check. So I'd ask him about the bridge on confirmation. I said, I've heard a lot of different versions of the bridge on confirmation. How did you play it with Bird? And he showed me, and so I, he showed me a phrase at a time. So I played it. And he said, I said, well, could you play it again? And he played it again, and I imitated it. And he said, I said, well, I thought I played what you played. He said, well, you played the notes I played, but you didn't play what I played. Play it again. So I played it again, he said. I said, well, what am I missing? He said, you played the right notes and you played the right rhythm, but you didn't play what I played. He said, you went. And they're all the same dynamic. And that's what I hear coming out of these kids in the school today. Everything is, I call it flatline music. Everything is the same. It's almost like a computer on playback. It's flatline emotionally. But when Bird did See, and some notes are louder than others, and they got rhythmic emphasis, and that's what makes it come alive and swing. Sure, yeah, of course. And then I started really listening. When I played with Dizzy, I'd listen to him and start matching that, and all of a sudden they clicked. And I said, oh, man, this is a whole other way of hearing. It really made a difference. Wow. Yeah. And then with Roland Kirk, I learned so much from Rassan, man. You know, he, he played, Rassan would play the whole history of the music in the course of one night in a gig. He, you know, he didn't just play one way. And he played New Orleans and pull out his clarinet. And then he played the slow blues and played the flute and talk on the flute. And he played Ellington style. He played bebop style, modal style. He played free boy. He could take it all the way out. Yeah. You know, he played everything. And one night, and this is when I was young too, back in San Francisco before I come to New York, uh, he went into an Ellington thing. And so I'd heard JJ, and I started out, my first improv was traditional, New Orleans. So I had no, I knew Saints and Muskrat Ramblin' and Bourbon Street Parade and all those kind of songs, you know, and I could tailgate. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I jumped to Bebop. I heard JJ and was like, oh man, I didn't know you could play trombone like that. <laughs> you know, and so I jumped over there trying to get with that. And so uh, uh, Roland Kirk played Ellington's song and I know the tailgate didn't fit. So I started phrasing like uh, JJ was more Bebop style. And so, uh, Roland said, don't play no bebop, this Ellington. And so I just kind of finished my course and got out. And afterwards, I asked him, I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, you know, different, different styles have different nuances and different phrases. It's still the language of the blues, but there's, there's phrasing that goes with that uh, approach to sound, to that style of jazz. Different eras as the generations change the music evolved. And he put on some records for me that he used to carry records with him. He had a Sidney Bechet record with Vic Dickinson playing mm-hmm. the feature solo. Mm-hmm. Then he turned me on to Trummy Young and Jack Teagarden and uh, J.C. Higginbotham and all them cats that came before J.J. And I didn't know about it. 
You know, and I said, well, that's cool. Yeah, I like that. I like that. But, you know, that Bebop and JJ, man, I never, yeah, he said, well, you try and play that. <laughs> and, and so I got the record and tried to play it, and I couldn't do it. Like Dickie Wells. Right. <laughs> Dickie Wells is a monster. <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, that's uh, some great, great, it's like a wealth of uh, jazz uh, experiences there. And, uh, but let's, uh, let's shift gears just a little bit now and, um, kind of talk a little bit about, in addition to your prolific jazz career, you've held down the trombone chair with the Saturday Night Live band now for 30 years and, uh, you know, arguably one of the most prestigious and lucrative bands in the history of television. I was curious what, you know, what that feels like for you. It's obviously a completely different thing than the, than your jazz side of your career, but but what's that like being in that kind of intense live television atmosphere and doing that for so many years <laughs> ongoing? It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, what other job can you have to where, you know, you play music on the highest level? Man, all the musicians in the band are good musicians, man. Ain't nobody jiving, you know. And, and and there's a lot of charts that are, they're funk and they're rocky, funky, but they're, they're slick and some of them is tricky, man. You know, you got to be on your P's and Q's. You can't just go in there and, 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 and coast. You got to be on your toes. But at the same time, you know, when the light come on, you hit and it's intense. And then the less time, rest of the time, you're laughing your butt off. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's really fun. It really is, you know. And, and I've seen the show evolve and, and cast members coming and going to be big stars. And yeah. it's really wonderful to be there. You know? And Lauren Michaels, man, he's, he's something else, man. I, Special cat, man. Yeah, to keep that going at that level for so man, and, and and the amount of of in that area of art and comedy, his lineage, his legacy, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk a little bit now uh, about your solo career because it's quite prolific as well. You've as I said earlier, you've uh, released sixteen CDs as a solo artist, and. Um, one of the things I always found as I followed your career through through your recordings is uh, you, you've evolved and you're constantly growing and, and, and that's one thing that's always inspired me. And in addition to the incredible playing you do with the trombone, you've introduced the seashell as a solo uh, mm-hmm. instrument, which is mm-hmm. quite remarkable to bring popularity to something that generally was not thought of as, as, a, as a solo instrument. So I was wondering if you could just you know talk kind of generally about about your approach to your solo career and, and how you've been able to kind of build that into uh, such a formidable part of your overall career? Mm. Well, looking back on it, I think it's an evolution, you know, and I'm glad it didn't happen until I was ready, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of youngsters today the record companies and whatnot, the media go looking for somebody in a school that's got a certain look or something. And they may have talent, but they don't have experience. It takes time to mature, to have your own voice and to have your own direction in music. Uh, I mean, artistic direct direction rather than a direction of I want to be famous and make money, you know, mm-hmm. but to have an artistic direction, it takes time because you have to learn. Uh, you have to grow. You have to find out 
what the world is about in order to express your life through this music. Because music is an expression of life. You know, whatever your life condition is, it comes out the end of your horn. Or through your instrument, you can't pretend, really. And uh, so, you know, when I was coming up, it was about the music. And you didn't get a shot of being a leader unless you were ready. And I'm grateful for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy, you know. That, and, and so it didn't come until later. I was in my uh, uh, mid to late 30s before I recorded as a leader. Mm -hmm. and, um, and even then, I was still working with Woody on and off. And then uh, I started doing Saturday Night Live, too. And, and, and it just kind of grew. Just like this, you know, it, it wasn't like I said, I'm going to go do, I didn't say I'm going to go in a practice room and do something different and do these intervals so I can get written up or, or I'm not going to do the shells. In fact, I was scared to play the shells in public. I, I didn't want people to laugh at it because, you know, Roland Kirk played three saxophones at once. Right. And if you really listen to the records, like Inflated Tear. That's some heavy stuff. It wasn't a joke. It wasn't a gimmick. It was beautiful music. He wasn't jiving. But people used to, you know, call it a menstrual act or something. He was very hurt by that. You know, he was sincere with it. And it hurt his feelings if people would um, make fun of it that way. Because, you know, I guess some people are jealous because he do that stuff to crowd and say, whoa, <laughs> you know. And being close to him, I felt his anguish about that and I didn't want him, people to say oh that shell is just a gimmick. The thing the thing that attracted me to the sound of the shell was his tone quality. Mm -hmm. It has such a beautiful sound. It's so resonant and warm. It's healing. It's it's uh, it, when Roland Kirk played a shell he had a shell and he would just pick it up and blow a note when people were talking too much in the club. He wanted to play a ballad and people was drinking and yakking and he just blowed his shell. And Roland Kirk, and I say this for the for the record, they had that jive uh, uh, publicity stunt when Kenny G released the record some years ago and, and he held the note for the Guinness Book of World Records. That's a publicity stunt. Roland Kirk was the champ of circular breathing. Mm. He was the champ of circular breathing. And he held this note on the shell. And after a couple of minutes, you know, maybe three to five minutes, all of a sudden, all the, even the drunkest people would stop talking. And, going, <laughs> and it made the room peaceful. Yeah. It really made the room peaceful. And there's something about that that attracted me. I said, wow, that's so beautiful. And, and you know, um, peace is a good thing, man. The planet certainly needs it. So I like the sound of the shell. That uh, attracted me, and I got one, and I tried it. And at first, I would just, at the last note of the tune, happened to be the note that the shell was in. i pick up and blow it on that note. So I didn't know how to use it, you know. And then one day, I was sitting in a chair like this. This is in San Francisco before I moved to New York. And I blew on the shell, and then I kind of got tired, and I had a gig the night before. And, and I sit there, I took a little cat nap. And then I picked up the shell with the other hand, and, it sh and my hand went inside the shell. And I picked it up and blew it, and it was a different note. Mm. I said, oh, man. I, I put my hand in and out. I could change the notes. And that's how I discovered to, to, that I could play a melody. I could get a fourth out of each shell. 
Bo, 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 bang. So, be da, 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 da. With two shells, I could play a scale. You know? And that's how I started playing just simple melodies. But the shell is mostly rhythm and simple melody. And then just your personality. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it come alive. It's it's not about, uh, I can't play Donnelly on the show. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. Of course. I, I always thought it was a really nice compliment to the trombone in terms of the sound. It just kind of, obviously, it's different. And like you're saying, it's more from a melodic standpoint. Yeah. Than but, you know, even even within the, the, the world of trombone, my favorite players are the ones that have the sound. That's what attracted me to J.J. so much, his tone. And can't nobody beat that sound, man. I, I can't believe it. It's like he, he has sound the same fullness and resonance and presence of people like Joe Alessi or Christian Lindbergh. He's got that level of sound going on. I agree. Yeah. Man, and, and that's what floats my boat. The first thing you hear when you hear somebody play is their sound. Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, along those lines, um, you know, you're active uh, worldwide as a clinician and as an educator. And as I mentioned, you're Professor of Jazz Ramon at Juilliard. I know you're filling in for Robin this year in Oberlin, and mm -hmm. you have a long track record of teaching in Manhattan School of Music. What's your feeling about the state of jazz education and, and where things are, are heading in that, uh, in that realm? Oh, well, that's very interesting. I'm, I'm glad to see that jazz education is being given credibility now. They're offering masters and doctorates and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's evolving in scope, but it's still in transition. It hasn't arrived yet, and in a certain sense, I don't know if it ever should totally, and I'll explain. In the early years of jazz education, and I'm not saying this to knock anybody, so to speak. It's just an observation. But a lot of the jazz educators, not all, but a lot of the jazz educators were teaching uh, not only for security of that kind of job, but, but in reality, they weren't the kind of player that had a personality to go out there and make it in the field as a performer. Mm -hmm. that's, a hard, that's a hard road. You know, I've been so blessed and really, Saturday Night Live has kept my head above the water mm -hmm. economically. That's mm -hmm. been my, uh, 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 what do you call it, bread and butter. Sure. But but um, it's a hard road to be a performer and to make a living at it, man. You know, it's no, no walk in the park. And, you know, people have families. I understand that and everything. But you got to really want to play to go out there and do it as a, as a performer. And so a lot of the jazz educators in the early years of jazz education, they weren't really uh, performers that were going to make it in the field, but they loved the music and they wanted to teach it, and they did. But when you get people that are out there playing every night to teach it and really live the music, you learn something different from them than mm -hmm. you do. What I learned in school, I learned reading, writing, arranging, voicing, how to follow your lead player in a section or follow a conductor. Uh, just the 
to just barely scratching the surfaces about stylistic approaches. They, they really don't teach that because most of the teachers don't, at least up until recently, don't play. So they don't really play the different styles. I believe if you're really teaching somebody something, you can't tell them about it. You got to show it to them. You got to play it for them. You know, showing is more important than talent. And for so for me, my real education, like I said, I learned the reading and the writing and the arithmetic and all that in, in the school. But then the music you got from playing with people that play the music. And and it's it it's an it's an environment thing. It's like learning a language. You can learn the words, but to learn the flow and the syntax and and the rhythm of that language, you got to be in the environment. You know now, jazz educated education is starting to have uh, people that are involved in the field working as professionals out there performing. Also be affiliated with the college university and the school will give them the flexibility to continue performing and that attracts students as well. Mm -hmm. And then, so it, you know, you kind of do both things at once. And I think that's a step up, mm -hmm. you know, it's definitely uh, exposing the students to uh, uh, all the different concepts that they're not going to get from somebody that's not a real performer. Right. And it's evolving in that. Where it's going to go, we'll see. But that's where it's at now. But the, the nature of the music is that the music is always evolving. Now, see, with, with uh, the way uh, European classical music is taught, um, you know, Bach, Brahms, Beethoven, and on, Stravinsky, uh, you know, and there's... It's a set thing, and they, they teach that, and it's uh, codified, so to speak. And there's certain things that are expected to know if you're going to play that style. Well, jazz has that. We have a history starting in New Orleans, and then the swing thing, and the bebop thing, and the modal thing, but it's still evolving. And so how the newer things are incorporated into the education is important, but it's important to do that, but at the same time, I think it's real important that they have to know where they're coming from to know where they're going. If they can't play a blues or they can't swing, well, then are they really taking the music forward? Mm -hmm. Because everything has to have a root. The root in the tree is what nourishes it and keeps it alive. The stronger the root in that tree, the more fruit the tree will bear. You know? Yeah, no, no question. I think it's uh... so. I, you know, it goes both ways to me. Uh, you know, I, I like to have my students find their own voices, and I encourage that. But at the same time, if I hear something lacking, I'm, I have some very good students at Juilliard, and I made them go learn Lawrence Brown solo from Duke, and it kicked their butt. <laughs> But they got it together. They say, oh, man, I didn't realize this. That, that, that. I said, those guys were just as serious about what they were doing as what we're doing now, yeah. except that they didn't have the opportunity to go to school yeah. like we do. So they had to figure stuff out for themselves. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, the history of the music is so rich. You have to respect that and have to reference that in your in your own musicianship i think you know if it, another thing that's very important to me and we didn't talk about it yet but is latin music 
Mm. Because that's a big part of who I am. <laughs> and I have a big experience in that. And I love it. And if you notice, I always include it in, in all of my music one way or another. Yeah, I have There's, no always, there's always some clave in there. You know? <laughs> and it's intentional. You know, I can't, I can't not acknowledge that because I like it. It makes me feel good when the music... See, there's different kind of swings. You know, you got the, the what we call swing, which is like, you know... Uh, Duke Ellington, Charlie Parker, Coltrane, you know, and, 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 sure. and that's based on African six. Mm-hmm. But then, like real funk, like James Brown, that make you want to dance too. I, I said my mom and dad met at a Count Basie dance, but James Brown, certainly if you hear that and you don't get up on the floor, there's something wrong with you, <laughs> you know, because that's another kind of swing. But then when you hear real Afro-Cuban salsa, whatever you want to call it, and that's another kind of swing when the club is there. That make you want to dance too. Yeah, no you question know, about you that. You know, and and they all they all got their roots in African music, but it evolved differently. And that's what Dizzy with the United Nation band. That's what that was about. Just bringing all that together, that whole family. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, you know it, it makes me feel good. So I believe a musician's like a doctor. You're supposed to make people feel better. So I, I like to play things. If it make me feel good, then that's going to make somebody... How can I make you feel good unless I feel good about it myself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good uh, good advice and, uh, and good words. <laughs> Steve, as we uh, as we kind of wind down, I want to just ask you a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, first one is, is uh, you know, you've done so much in your career. I mean, it's like I said at the beginning, it's one of the most impressive jazz drummer careers in the history of the instrument. And the one thing I know about you is you are so dedicated to the music and you're always evolving and you're always doing new things. With all that you've done, where do you see yourself going in the next 10, 15, 20, 25 years in terms of uh, Mm. musical goals that you might have? (laughs) Oh, I have a lot of unrealized dreams, actually. Uh, Unfortunately, in the the, uh, world we live in, economic inequality going on and everything. It's about money mm-hmm. to realize any kind of dreams at this point. A good part of it is about money to get it uh, realized. You know, I have a lot of music I've written that I've never been able to play or record. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a Juan Tizal project. I mean, he did nice. a whole he did a whole lot more than write Caravan and Perdido. Yeah. But those are great tunes. But he wrote a whole lot of music. And not just for Duke, for Harry James, for all kind of people. And it's good music. So I got a, a project for that. I, I want. I got enough music for another uh, recording with the with Sanctified Shells, with the Shell Choir, which is almost more like world music with a heavy jazz influence. Mm. Uh, I got a Latin jazz project that I'd like to realize. I'd like to do a recording someday with uh, strings and just do some standards, uh, and especially with the plunger, because mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm I'm a big believer in the plunger. I think that's part of the art of our instrument, and I'm glad to see that it's people are starting to get interested in it again. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is a big part between of Al Gray and. Tricky Sam and whatnot. 
Yeah. Quentin was. Jackson and Tyree was a great plunger man. Ed Newmeister plays good plunger. He sure does, yeah, terrific. And, and Wycliffe Gordon plays wonderful plunger. Yeah, no question. You know, yeah. so it's being carried on. Uh, but you know, that's another project. Um, you know, it's just a, a lot of things that I'd like to do. Well, that's inspiring, and I knew you were going to have a good uh, list of uh, great projects in the in your future. So, um, Steve, one of the, the way I like to close out a lot of the uh, features that we've done and the interviews that we've done is um, we have a lot of young people listening, and when we get uh, we're fortunate enough to get a great artist like yourself, I like to ask, you know, if you if you can put it in a in a nutshell, sort of, if there's a if, there's a young person out there who's dreaming of a career in jazz. If you had a couple pieces of advice for him, what what, uh, what might you tell him? Ooh, that's rough. <laughs> <laughs> that's hard. I realize it's a, uh, a meaty one to end on. Well, from my heart, I have to say that you have to do it because you love it. That, that the music has to be the thing that makes your life worthwhile. And then the trials and tribulations will not upset your apple cart. Mm-hmm. You know, there's and, it, and it's funny, but it's not just music. But music is a rough, a rough road, like I said before, if you want to be a performer and make a living at it. But if you believe strong enough and have enough uh, uh, dedication, perseverance, and discipline, you can find a way, you know. Um, it's not impossible to do, but you have to, to be willing to, to have some good times and some bad times and not get, uh, give up, you know, mm-hmm. not get all depressed about it. There's going to be good times. There's going to be bad times. That's okay. That's part of life. Life is like that anyway for everybody. Sure is. And it's not the end of the world if you didn't get this gig or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. just keep going, play the music and you'll find a way. And, and I just never gave up, you know. And it's still hard sometimes, but so what? <laughs> that's a, like what Miles would say. So what? <laughs> well, see, that's great advice. And uh, once again, thank you for uh, taking time out of your schedule today. And, and thanks for the years of inspiration for all of us, uh, oh, trombone players and composers <laughs> and everything. You've uh, set the bench, uh, the mark very high, and uh, and we appreciate it all. So continued success. And once again, thanks for spending some time with us today. My pleasure. All right. We'll see you all next time on Bone Pick. Thanks for joining us.